0: The red flag Hello and welcome to Socialist Think Tank. Today we are doing something that you probably wouldn't expect on the day of um, a pretty shocking set of election results in mainland um, UK. But we're going to do something that other channels don't tend to do which is we're tonight focusing on Northern Ireland and um I think a lot of you will probably agree with us that the political education around Northern Ireland in mainland UK is absolutely appalling. So we are going to have a discussion around that tonight. Um, it's not formal education. Don't worry. We won't be just like going through a slideshow and boring you to death. We're going to talk about to real people who've lived in Northern Ireland, who care about Northern Ireland and who understand what is going on. Um, so uh, I'm going to start off with Sean. Can we say hello, Sean, and tell me a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, Sean Byers. Um, I live in Belfast and I work for Trademark, which is a trade union-based organisation that works in anti-sectarianism, political education, and uh, the new economy.
0: Yeah, we've uh, we've interviewed um, Stephen. From... Yeah, he's, right. he's uh, that was one of our. Yeah, that was a really popular one, and we love what trademark Belfast are doing. So, uh, thanks for coming on. Um, and we've also got Stephen Baker. Hello, Stephen.
2: How you doing? How's
0: it yeah, going? Yeah, I'm all right. Yeah, so tell me a little about a little bit about yourself.
2: Yeah, um, I'm, I'm from the outskirts of Belfast, um, basically. Um, I'm, a, I'm a lecturer at a university. I lecturer in sort of media and politics and and culture. I've written a couple of books. One of them about the the Northern Ireland peace process and media representations and another book about um, the British media and uh, their uh, reporting and coverage of Bloody Sunday. So that's largely my
0: background. Um, Interestingly enough, that came up in my staff room today, Bloody Sunday, and everyone was just saying, oh, what's that? What, what is it? Like, literally didn't have a clue what it was, uh, even like, you know, I suppose maybe a couple of people who are into music know it from the U2 song, and that's about it. So uh, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's the situation as it is, so I'm so glad you've uh, you've come out to join us as well, and uh, a lot of people will be already familiar with Tina McKay, but Tina, it's always good to have you here, and it's always good to learn something about you, so Tina.
3: Oh God, um, I'm trying to think now what else I could say. But in it, I suppose in in relation to the, the subject matter that we've got tonight, um, I'm a, I, I could say you know that I've been excommunicated from Ireland and make it sound like it's all you know been some sort of scandal. But I just I left uh, to come over to to university and then I've, I've kind of never you know just never moved back yet. They haven't kicked me out of England yet. They've kicked me up to Scotland for a while and, <laughs> and then. Then i maybe when they get tired of me I'll go back home. But I, I'm I'm a visitor now, unfortunately. But it's still home, you know.
0: Well, it's um, it's always good to uh, have you here. It's also I, I found it really funny before when we found out that like you know you went to Sunderland University, so you have got the Northeast connection as well, which is uh, which is nice. And uh, Sean, you've got a Northeast connection as well, haven't you?
1: Yeah, my partner spent their childhood in Redcar. Yeah. Yeah. Or-
0: I don't, I don't want to leave you out either, Stephen. You don't have a northeast connection, do you?
2: No, no. My 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 my, my, my grandfather's from Cornwall. You know, other end. Uh, <laughs> but Lord you are you Sankers. are in odds. You are in <laughs> yeah. odds
0: where where my wife and people will know from socialist think tank. Laura is from. So uh, yeah. So there is a connection there as well we're all lovely and connected. So what's inspired this is uh, a few of our viewers were talking about like what's going on at the moment in Northern Ireland and Arlene Foster's resigned from the DUP and uh, I believe Sean are you going to kick us off on this one? Yeah, I can do. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. Um, okay, so
1: the and in, in the news is Arlene Foster resignation as leader of the DUP which is the Biggest unionist party in in the north of Ireland. Um, now, Foster's resignation has been a a long time in the making. I suppose we've seen plenty of hot takes in the British and the Irish media. You know, putting this down simply down to down to Brexit. And you know, I've I've seen people in Britain, in particular, in the media using this issue to their to their own ends. Um, but it's been a long time in the making. Um, Foster's been the DUP leader since two thousand and fifteen, and her whole tenure has pretty much been a disaster. Um, she took over from Peter Robinson uh, in two thousand and fifteen, and I suppose she was seen as the person who was going to continue with the project of modernising the DUP, which is sort of which has hardline and fundamentalist religious roots, um, dating back to its foundation by Ian Paisley in the 1960s. So she was seen as as the person who was gonna continue modernizing the party. Um, But as I say, her whole tenure has been a disaster. So it's been marked by the DUP's resistance to any sort of progress around social reforms, around marriage equality, um, around abortion, liberalization in line with the rest of, of the UK. Um, resistance to an Irish Language Act. Um, the DUP and Sinn Féin um, were party to an agreement in 2007 that brought them in the government together and, uh, and as part of that there was a commitment to introduce an Irish Language Act. Um, so 15 years later, uh, 16 years later, or no, sorry, 14, sorry. <laughs> Bloody maths. Um, it, hasn't, it hasn't happened. But in the past number of years um, the DUP, Including Foster have not only resisted the Irish language act but denigrated the Irish language and insulted large sections of the nationalist population. Um, Foster struggled to contain more extreme sort of DUP figures, which have been uh, you've seen using outlandish sort of extreme rhetoric at, at times. And Foster herself was implicated in a financial scandal, um, which brought eventually brought down the executive in two thousand and seventeen, um, and the executive was suspended for three years. So. The executive was finally restored um, after three years, but that was after some hard negotiations. Um, so all of these factors are, have, have come into play. Um, but of course, Brexit has been a major factor, um, and particularly the DUP's mishandling of Brexit. I know Steve might want to say a bit more about this, but the DUP fundamentally mistook what was the outworkings of a Tory an English Tory Civil War for a more universal sort of British project of which they were a, an equal partner. And um they mistook the, the fluke, I suppose, of their position as kingmaker um with the, the Tory government as something much more meaningful and, and permanent, maybe. Um now foster herself um and this is the irony of it, like Foster's opponents within the DUP were the people driving a hard Brexit strategy. They were the people who forged an alliance with the European Reform Group uh, and with Johnson um, and drove a hard Brexit strategy when Foster herself was probably more amenable to a softer Brexit, but she went along with it. And in the end, the DUP played like a fiddle by the ARG, by Boris Johnson. Um, and, you know, they got their sort of, you know, their comeuppance <laughs> um, you know, in terms of how, how it's played out. Um, so all, all of these factors have come into play. Um, and what the DUP have done is the managed to enrage Irish nationalists. Um, They've managed to alienate more liberal pro-EU unionists. And they've at the same time sort of emboldened more hardline figures and elements within unionism. So that's that's their achievement over the past number of years. So in, in February of this year, there was a poll released that showed that the DUP was set to, there's an assembly election next year, and the poll revealed that the DUP was set to lose major ground to both the Alliance Party, um, uh, the Liberal sort of centrist Alliance Party, and the TUV, which is a hardline offshoot of of the the DUP. Um, until that point, Foster was was content enough with the the protocol, uh, subject to some sort of you know flexibilities and, and amendments. Um, but there was internal pressure. Um, she came out with more sort of inflammatory um, rhetoric to whip up tensions, and that was the result of that was the riots that, and the protests that we've seen on the ground. Um, but it was too late for her, and the her opponents within the party had already uh, pressed the trigger in terms of um, trying to precipitate her her ousting uh, and. Um, they signed a signed a letter, and there's overwhelming opposition to to Foster, so she she had to go. So all those factors have come into play. Brexit has been one of them, but there's there's been a whole load of things happening at the same time. I think it's Sean. It, it all started so well for her as well,
2: you know. Arlene Foster come into the leadership at the DUP. This incredible crest of a wave. You know, she her background is she was she had been a, a member of the Ulster Unionist Party, mm. and would be considered a little bit more moderate than the DUP, but still very conservative, and so she had been in that party, and then she left them um, with Jeffrey Donaldson, um, because of the negotiations that led to the Good Friday Agreement, and she joined the DUP instead, and very quickly went through the ranks of the DUP seemed to be anointed by Peter Robinson, um, their former leader, and I suspect her rise was so swift because. I don't know that the DUP are a party with very much talent in it, but I can remember you know, shortly after she was elected and the DUP seemed to be riding high in the polls. It was that remarkable moment when they had the conference and there was all these young men and some not so young men all gathered on the stage around her, all jumping about, you know, singing Arlene's on Fire. So she was <laughs> kind of loved. So her fall over that, that, that sort of since then has been really spectacular. You know, really spectacular that not just the misjudgments of of Brexit, as as Sean says, like, you know, um, the DUP mistook that uh, the the Brexit campaign for a kind of resurgence in a kind of British imperial identity. You know, when everybody else could see that it was that it owed more to and was being led by um, English nationalists and free marketeers. You know, now that really matters if you live somewhere, a little peripheral place like uh, like Northern Ireland, you know, because, you know, we don't, you know, we're not, we, we rely upon um, the British Exchequer in many ways, you know, for a subvention. You know, we are not going to triumph in the, in the global free market. So the, so the idea of hitching your star to um, a politics which were so clearly indebted to free, the free market as the Brexit thing was was just utter madness, but even before that, there was the sort of things that like Sean says, that series of scandals um, that they were mired in as well, um, and just incredible ineptitude. And so it has been, it's been a, quite a spectacular kind of fall from grace, but again, as I say, she was seen as somebody who was going to be a much more moderate, well, not a much more, just a little <laughs> bit more moderate, <laughs> a bit more pragmatic politically yeah. than, some, than some of the other figures that you have um, in the in the DUP. Um, And, you know, it's it's been a bit of a catastrophe. I I suspect that, you know, that moment when 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 um, the DUP, you know, enter that kind of loose coalition with with Theresa May's Conservatives. That's probably the first time that an English audience Mm -hmm. caught a glimpse of the DUP. I've caught a glimpse of what we've been living with here for so long. You know, they are a kind of unionist Taliban in some respects. (laughs) That they're that bad, you know. So I mean, this is the party when we were growing up that used to tie up the swings in parks mm-hmm. on a Sunday, you yeah. know. Um, the party that put picket lines on pubs when you wanted to go in and have a drink on a Sunday and stuff like this. So you know, there's a there's a very deep sort of religious fundamentalism about them. Uh, Foster was seen as being sort of slightly different from that, but it's been a it's been a bit of a catastrophe. And the question is now really what what the party does next. You know, does it go for does it elect Jeffrey Donaldson, who's I say defected from the Ulster Unionist Party with Arlene Foster? Do the DUP go back to another uh, UUP blow-in, or do they go for the more traditional um, Edwin Putts, who you know his family's roots are in the DUP from its foundations when mm. Paisley uh, put it together? So this is going to be interesting.
3: I think it's really interesting the thing for me is that you know i think that um you know the, the, the writing was on on the wall a long time ago for the dup um and i think in particular for arlene and i think what they failed to do was see you know the inevitable and i think that for you know especially for me being you know out of the north you know and i i'm looking in now and and i look around and, and people don't care about the dup here in fact people don't even care about the north over here either, because they're too, you know, busy with their own concerns and the 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 sort of sway and nationalism that, you know, that, that's um, growing here. But I think that the DUP, and I think for a lot of unionists in the North as well, don't understand that people do not care about them. They're in irrelevance to the rest of Britain. Britain doesn't need the North, doesn't want the North, and they don't even understand what's going on. Hence the fact we're having, you know, a bit of this conversation tonight. But... The fact that they couldn't say that you know we we have a like you know paul you know we say this all the time never trust a Tory. the fact that that you know has not seemed to have come across that you know they just swallowed the the lies that came from boris johnson and you know the conservative party that oh yes you know you're important to us we'll not you know cut you loose you know the the north will not be you know any different to the rest of of britain and you know, they actually believe this and everybody else, I mean, I know, you know, I know you know, people that I know from the North over here, we walk on, I can't believe they're swallowing this. They're going to discard them at any, at any opportunity. In the moment that the the election, you know, happened and, you know, Boris Johnson increased his vote share, well, you know, the DUP were in irrelevance and, and they've been, you know, shown up to be as much and how they couldn't see any of this coming, I just don't know. And, it's, it's dire, and I think the one thing that, you know, makes me laugh, you know, and I know I shouldn't, but what made me laugh today was I actually, because I was thinking about us coming on this, and I thought, were Arlene Foster and Keir Starmer, you know, having the same focus groups? Because they seem to have gone for the same approach. They've both alienated every element possible that the need, you know, for success, you know, on an electoral platform. And, you know, it, it's quite alarming, you know, that. They both need, or Arlene has no opportunity now, but the DUP and the Labour Party are missing one key thing in their strategy and they're not listening to the people. So when they're going to replace leaders or they're going to do a new strategy, don't do that navel-gazing and do it from within. Go and listen to the people. And, you know, it seems like, it's to me, it's a very simple thing to do, that that would be the first thing that you would think of doing. Well, we represent the people, let's go and listen to them, you know?
0: I think that's the first, like, we, we discussed beforehand how we were going to do this. And we're like, how do we do this? Because the history of Northern Ireland so rich and there's so many different aspects to it. And we could we were talking about maybe doing a historical aspect first and then coming into it. Well, We could just speak about history forever. So what we decided to do was, like, kind of have flashbacks in there. And I think the first flashback, and, and Tina, you'll know that, like, people here just really, when the D.U.P., came into that coalition arrangement with Theresa May or the supply and uh, whatever it was supply and demand or whatever they called it um, confidence and supply that was on yes. um, they went they went into the confidence and supply arrangement with um, there was no demand the, yeah <laughs> It wasn't. Well, they, got a, they got a bit of money, though, didn't they? Um, but, a hell of but a bit of like, money. Like. You know what? That was the first time a lot of people had heard of them. And people were like, oh, no, who are the DUP? And I think my first thing that I said was, oh, they're the, the dinosaur deniers. And people were like, you what? So, like, can we explain? like the, the first flashback is, who are the DUP? Why do they exist? What do they believe in? And I guess that can go to anyone.
3: I I'll just go very quickly because I feel like I'm sitting with two you know much more intelligent experts than me uh, and, and yourself Paul of course, um, but I whenever people used to ask me who are the DUP I because there had been a Louis Theroux documentary on the Westboro Baptist Church. So that was kind of like the closest thing that I could, you know, relate them to. So I used to say, yeah, they're the Westboro Baptist Church, but on acid, you know, they're absolutely worse than, than, you know, than the Westboro Baptist Church, but they are that kind of, it is that fundamentalist aspect, but I just think that they're, yeah, I, I, I shouldn't laugh because there are so, you know, it is a, you know, they are a credible ish party, they do command a lot of support, you know, they are actually the the leading party currently but what they believe, it's just astounding that this is, we're talking, we're 2021, you know and it's just unbelievable but yeah, I I shouldn't joke too much I'll leave it to the serious minds to to educate the people
2: (laughs) Do you want to have a go at the history, Sean? I'll
1: have a start (laughs) (laughs) Well (laughs) Look like I'm sure, as as most people know, like the 1960s was a was a time of of come up, like I suppose um, activism, the emergence of the civil rights movement, um, and of course, like, you had eventually you had the outbreak of the troubles in 1969. Um, in response I suppose, to suppose the the civil rights movement and some of the the demands that were being made at the time, the there emerged this Firebrand sort of preacher, um, Ian Paisley, um, who had a, a decent following, but not a not a substantial following. And Paisley emerged, I suppose, um, as a reaction to the you know, the civil rights movement, as a reaction to the mobilization of the nationalist community for for equality. Um And uh, in reaction to any moves that were being made by some of the more moderate uh, elements within official unionism uh, in in government to accommodate some of those reforms that were being demanded. Um, So he he emerged in that sort of environment against that backdrop. um, And the DUP was eventually established from that um, it had a base in the Free Presbyterian Church, which is an extreme sort of hardline, right-wing, um, fundamentalist um, philosophy. Um, it was exclusively Free Presbyterian. Um, and I suppose the, the guiding principle of the DUP was just like, you know, the no surrender um, type of attitude, not one inch. To give to, to the nationalist community or any any sort of demand for for reform. And he was successful in undermining um, the Unionist government at the time, the Prime Minister Terence and you know, Prime Minister Terence O'Neill, who, who went some way but not far enough to try to accommodate some of the demands that the civil rights movement were making. Um, but he feels he faced the revolt from within his own party um and he faced uh, uh, pressure from paisley and, and the supporters and that eventually proved to be his undoing and of course the uvf emerged at, at the same time as that but that's that's the time that the, the DP emerged um and throughout their history they were the, the naysayers they they were the people who um resisted any um effort Uh, At different points of time, they resisted efforts to try to bring about a a political resolution to to the conflict, Um, even attempts to institute some sort of form of power sharing between the two main communities, and they resisted all of those efforts um, over the course of of history Um, until 2007, whenever um, Paisley, who was still the DUP leader, um and then it became first minister, um, agreed to enter into to you know sort of bury the axe with with their erstwhile enemies, the Sinn Fein, and enter into government with Sinn Fein, which is uh, just a remarkable turnout for the for the books. Um, but that's their history. It was no, 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 no. And then yes, okay. But that was the only the only agreed to enter into government once they had totally destroyed uh, David Trimble and the Ulster Unionist Party, who who had been signatories to the Good Friday Agreement in the first place, and, our, and one of the architects of the Good Friday Agreement, they destroyed them first, and then they agreed to to enter in government in two thousand and seven, and that's what led to ten years of power sharing, you know, on and off between the DUP and Sinn Féin. I, I think I think
2: unionism baffles people uh, <laughs> outside of, of, of Ireland and, and Northern Ireland, you know, and and it's maybe worth trying to explain a little bit about what it, what it actually is, um, and how you know, how how it kind of thinks. I mean the thing about unionism is, you've always got to qualify anything you're going to sort of say by pointing out that unionism is very diverse. You know, there are people who consider themselves to be liberals and moderate unionists. And progressive unionists and unionists who would see themselves as as both socialists and unionists as well. Now, the thing is that there are three unionist parties represented in the Northern Ireland Assembly, and they're all just different shades of conservatism. So even though you've got these liberal, moderate and progressive unionists, they don't really have any particular voice at all. So it's very difficult to tell how many there are because they have so little representation. So, you know, then, you, as I said, you got, you got that kind of variety, but I think you know, the, the interesting thing is, and I think one of the reasons why people don't understand unionism is, is because, you know, Irish nationalism and Irish republicanism are easy to get, you know, they're, they're nationalists. Uh, they want a sovereign nation and that's comprehensible because the world's full of people who live in nations, you know, and so that, that makes sense. What do unionists want? What do they actually want? You know, it's, it's sort of the, the, the baffling language which unionism very often uses. So one of the very common slogans you'll hear from unionists is Ulster is British. For God in Ulster, Ulster is British, you know. And Ulster clearly isn't British. It's on another island, you know. And even there, there are even nine counties of Ulster which are not included within Northern Ireland. So what does it mean when somebody says Ulster is British? Well, Well, loyalists and unionists know exactly what they mean. When they say Ulster is British, and in many respects, what they're talking about is a province of their their imagination. You know, and that's not to sort of say that it doesn't have potency and it doesn't mean something very much, but it is a a province of their imagination, which in many respects is exclusively uh, Protestant. That's that's what it is, and that's the kind of ideal. It's a kind of ideal that they hold to. So you like said earlier on, there, Tina, we sort of said, that, you know, why don't Unionists understand that uh, that people in England don't want them mm-hmm. that does not matter to Ulster Unionists. Not one bit. Because what they're loyal to is this ideal. Mm-hmm. That ideal. And you know the problem is for the English? You let them down. You sold out that ideal on them. You know, mm-hmm. maybe you're not loyal to it any longer because maybe you're not sufficiently English any, or not sufficiently British any longer. But they've held fast to that ideal. So in a way, you know that's a kind of that's a very different politics from a nationalist politics or mm. the politics of the nation and that's why i think sometimes unionism just looks incomprehensible to people who don't live here and i think it's also probably sometimes why it, it, it gets it's it gets easy to mock because it just looks it looks it just looks so out of step with what everybody else is doing but it has its own mm. internal logic that makes sense to people who are, who are unionists and who are are, are are loyalists also so
0: like That's incredibly interesting. I'm sure people have learned loads from that, but um, I'm sort of building to a question that Ruth Davidson asked, but um, I thought that it's the better than people had. And not the Ruth Davidson, <laughs> definitely not. She's one of our uh, she's one of our members. Um, so <laughs> she, uh, um, definitely a lot more to the left of that Ruth Davidson. Although, like that Ruth Davidson's probably a lot to the left of uh, the DUP and the Conservative Party. But anyway, um, so we build into this question, and you might be able to see it in the in the chat yourselves there. But I think it's probably important now because. The other side of the coin is probably um, Sinn Féin in this. Now, I've I've knocked doors for the Labour Party and stuff, and I've heard that not only um, not only Jeremy Corbyn spoke to Sinn Féin, but I've also heard people saying that uh, Jeremy Corbyn was in the IRA and also a pacifist, um, which <laughs> is kind of the, the, one of the weirdest contradictions I've ever heard. But people genuinely believe this, and this is how remarkable I think people's ideas around what's going on in Northern Ireland are so can you explain what Sinn Féin is and and where they stand at, at the moment so like the history of Sinn Féin and where they are now?
3: Sean's a history buff.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so br- briefly I suppose um, Sinn Féin historically has been seen as the political wing of the uh, uh, the IRA um, historically, um, and uh, I suppose the the armed the armed struggle of the IRA the armed, the IRA's armed campaign uh, took precedence um, up until around 1981 um, with the hunger strikes, and the effect of the hunger strikes was to and there's obviously 10, 10 men died uh, during the hunger strikes. People have heard of Bobby Sands and so on. Like the effect of the hunger, and Bobby Sands was elected during that time um, as, a, as an MP with a massive, massive vote in um, Fermanagh, South Tyrone. Um, and that was a huge sort of significance because what that said to the Republican movement was that there was a potential electoral base for their, for their project there was a pol- potential political outlet for the project. And that was coming at a time when they were sort of start- starting to see that the arms struggle itself um, maybe wasn't going to achieve their ultimate objective of United Ireland, um, or certainly not as soon as, as they had, as immediate as, made as they had hoped. Um, so that, that sort of hunger strike moment was a big turning point um, for the Republican movement uh, as a whole. And I, I suppose that's the point at which you can see Sinn Féin becoming more prominent, the political strategy becoming more prominent. And, of course, that developed uh, over time. Um, Sinn Féin <clears throat> grew its support base. Um, it Eventually, uh, the, the IRA declared a ceasefire in 1994. And... Um, short of the the republican movement's objectives of British withdrawal but and you know that it was the compromise that the the republican movement had to make at the time faced with a sort of stalemate in terms of the military campaign um, Sinn Fein as a as a consequence uh, supported the Good Friday agreement in 1998 at that time it was still the second, the second political force in Irish nationalism, the SDLP, were still the the biggest political force, but in the decade that followed, that Sinn Féin um, really managed to um, steal the SDLP's clothes, I suppose, um, and hegemonise the SDLP and become the the biggest uh, nationalist party in the north to the point that they're you know sort of on approaching the. The point of utter sort of dominance um in terms of nationalist politics in, in the mm-hmm. north. So that's that's Jim Fein. In terms of where they stand, um it's it's interesting, like um, because Jim Fein pulled the plug on the executive in 2017, and that was that was due to building pressure from within their own support base um that they had made. A lot, a lot of concessions to, uh, through successive talks processes, um, and still the the DUP um, wasn't keeping to its word. And the Irish Language Act was one of the one of the big issues. Um, Sinn Féin was pressured by its own support base and by wider society to to do something about it. And pulling the plug was was sort of the last resort, but but they did that. Um, Sinn Féin. Need Northern Ireland, and it's, it's, it's strange, but Sinn Féin need Northern Ireland to work for their own political strategy, and I expand on that a wee bit later if you, if you want me to. But they need um, Northern Ireland to work for their own political strategy, um, so they they would ideally like to see things back up and running um, and uh, a sense of stability, political stability, um, but whether we're going to get that anytime soon. Um, you know it's down to what happens to the DUP. Good question there in
2: the sidebar from Maureen about where Sinn Fein, the original political party for Southern Ireland, going back early 1900s. I mean, we, when, we, when we were talking before we came on, we sort of said, God, let's not do the history, you know, let's not do the history, but. You know, because that sort of question leads you in. That's a really good question, actually, and it does, it just, it leads you into a kind of a debate about, well, okay, with the Irish parliamentary party, you know, um, back around the time of the Home Rule, and they kind of overtaken by Sinn Féin, and then you get the Irish Civil War, and, and it merges out of that as Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, and, you know, and it's, you know, I think that they're the, the, one of the reasons, perhaps, why Irish politics and Northern Irish politics looks kind of incomprehensible from the other side. Um, of the RC is is because it's very difficult to map on the kind of left right politics of the of the UK yeah. on, on the Ireland. It's it's <laughs> politics here are, are are set up around uh, civil wars and um, different and, and, and constitutional arrangements. Um, so it's it's you know it's a really good question. But you know it's 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 a it's it's another one for Sean, really, isn't it? I think
1: that, I, I think it's fair to say there's been different manifestations of Sinn Féin. Mm-hmm. The 1905 one, the one of the revolutionary period, a different incarnation since then, but the it's Sinn Féin... A bit that,
3: like the Labour Party in a sense. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but there's, I suppose there's no real historical thread tying the Sinn Féin 1905 to the Sinn Féin of today, but the Sinn Féin we see now is that which has existed um, for the duration of, of the Troubles.
0: So when when you say that um when you say that there's no link now so do, is Sinn Fein like kind of did they re-emerge or did they like kind of take inspiration from a, from the Sinn Fein of the 1900s is that what's going on here because I'm not 100 sure on this one there, there is a
1: there is a thing within Irish republicanism about claiming the mantle and um, invoking tradition. You know, so historical continuity and saying that we are the original, um, you know, we we can draw our lineage back to the original forefathers of of republicanism and certainly to the forefathers of republic 20th century republicanism. So there is a big thing about tradition and historical lineage and age, and different um, republican organizations will lay claim. To the mantle of different organizations, different historical figures. Conley, for example, um, everyone has lays claim to Conley. Uh, and Sinn Fein's one one example. You know, they will say that they, uh, they will claim that they they can trace their roots back to nineteen o five, and Sinn Fein they are the same party, but in fact, they're not. Like, I mean, that Sinn Fein fell away. Um, the Sinn Féin that emerged after that, the revolutionary Sinn Féin, fell away, and as Steve has said, fell away into Fine Gael and Fianna um, And it was only later a Sinn Féin re-emerged um, as a coherent or a political force. Um, and then you had the, <laughs> the outbreak of the Troubles. You had a Republican split between two different factions of Republicanism. Um, so you had two Sinn Féins emerge. Um, but the Sinn Féin that exists today is that which is Historically tied to the the provisional IRA um, that existed throughout the throughout the troubles.
0: So, <laughs> so Tina, you're laughing there. Like, why is this? <laughs> it's just, just the, the ridiculousness of the situation, maybe or. The... No
3: just more you know because we were talking about you know before we came on how you know if we started on one thing you know it would just kind of grow legs and we'd just go further and further and I was laughing when that question came on because I could see where this was going to go and I thought this is just going to go on and on and also the, the the I think I just laugh at the you know and, and the, the traditional you know when we talk about the traditional things it just makes me think of how how wedded we are to things that really you know have no impact really no no material impact or you know on how we exist um as a class as people you know in our daily lives and you know I've kind of just been thinking about some of the the books that I've, I've read you know throughout this conversation listening to both Stephen and Sean and thinking you know the two particular books that come to mind and one of them is imagined communities by benedict anderson and the other being banal nationalism which if you haven't read that by uh, michael billig is one of it's one of the i know Stephen, you will have because it's on i did it through the course i did at uni and it's it's one of the books that stuck with me for because it um it just reminded me so much of the situation you know growing up um flags um just nonsense that we're seeing now you know in um in britain you know the how it masquerades as as your identity as something to cling to when it really doesn't make a difference to your daily life and that's you know just uh, you know sometimes i I laugh a bit when i get nervous as well or laugh whenever i see similarities with things and i just think that that's why to me that the, the sort of this this program talking about the north and the history of it is so relevant to where we are today and I mean, I'm sitting, you know, talking to you in Scotland where there is a huge debate, as we know at the moment, where there's just a, a focus constantly on a border pole and will they become independent. And this is unfortunately what I see as being the future for the north for the next God knows how many years when, you know, the focus will be on something like the SNP have done here, focus constantly on one issue and ignore the rest. Which is what's going to happen? I think is what Sinn Féin are going to do. You know, over the next you know few years, are going to focus on this one issue, which will then completely take up all the time, all the effort, all the energy, and all the attention, especially within the media, on away from the issues of you know the ordinary people, the working class people, and um, I just think that you know that it. I saw the day that Arlene resigned. Um, I saw. A, there was a uh, the correspondent in Belfast was talking to wasn't actually sorry tell was it what it was no it was the 100 the 100 uh the partition 100th anniversary of the north and they were in west Belfast with the, there were people marching as per usual um in their in their little housing areas and you know it was quite sad I was listening to, to one of the the um, residents who was speaking to the reporter saying that you know Arlene had to go because you know she and it just goes back to Sean's conversation earlier about um Sinn Fein be about because they'd conceded too much, they'd given too much to the other side, and that you know the working class people needed you know the DUP to you know continue working for them. And I was astounded by this because I just thought the DUP aren't working for you, no party in North in the North is, is working for the working class. And you know, I just started to think about this whole border issue and I thought nothing is going to change until. You know, the people grasp the opportunity. And I do think that this is, you know, if Sinn Féin play this right, have a massive opportunity to open up their electoral politics to all demographics in the North, if they focus on class conditions, if they focus on, you know, the the social conditions that people are living in, and maybe talk less about a flag, maybe talk less about wanting a border poll, and talk about the issues that, you know, that are fundamental to people's lives. So social housing, job security, all these things are important, whether you're Catholic or Protestant or whether you're in between or, you know, whether you believe in nothing, you know, they're all the same. So, you know, it shouldn't matter. And I just think that, you know, while we have focused a little bit on the history, I think the political parties in the North can focus too much time on the history and miss the opportunity that they have to change you know, the the landscape of things and, and really change people's lives. And I just think that there's there's a huge opportunity, even you know, if they do, you know, succeed in getting the border pole in, in what sort of Ireland that they're going to create for the ordinary people, but they're gonna miss a trick if they remove the ordinary people from those conversations.
2: I think there's a there's a you know um I I, I stood as a as a labour co- labour coalition candidate here, back in nineteen ninety six, and I was I was much younger than Augustine, and part of it was you know you, what what you wanted to do was to go and put an offer to voters and say, mm-hmm. look, vote on these bread and butter issues. Here's mm-hmm. the things we you know, we care about: national health service, jobs, um, welfare, education, things like that. Um, and it, it never cuts through. It, it it's always it's always trumped by the by the by the constitutional question Um, and it's one which i I, I hold my hands up i've tried to avoid talking about for many many years just because it's just a can of worms you just don't want to open you know Um, you don't want to have to do that and i've come to the conclusion uh reluctantly that it just can't be avoided any longer it can't be avoided and it can't be avoided for a number of reasons one of the reasons is that actually constitutional settlements really matter. Mm -hmm. And they matter because that's the framework within which you will try to advance your other aims and objectives, social economic uh, uh, objectives, objectives around women's rights, um, environmental sustainability. Those you will uh, uh, try to advance it through a particular type of constitutional settlement. And the constitutional settlement that exists at the moment within the UK doesn't work. It doesn't work for anybody in Scotland. I don't know if it works for people in England that well, although they seem to be happy enough to vote for for Boris Johnson, and I don't know whether it's going to work for Wales forever, but it certainly doesn't work here um, in the north of Ireland. Now, the fact that the UK's constitutional settlement should be redundant is not necessarily an argument for a united Ireland. It might be, but not necessarily, because there's no historical inevitability. But the experience of of living here is is that you exist in a constitution where it doesn't matter what we vote for, we get what English voters want, you know. And so those election results, and I'm sure people in Scotland feel the same. Those election revo- results that sort of confirm that English voters want to vote for a liar like Boris Johnson, you know, a charlatan like Boris Johnson. If that's what if that's what where England is at at the moment, we what do we do? How long do we wait? You know. Um, because in, in terms of, and just numerically, there are more English people within the United Kingdom than Scots, Irish and Welsh put together. Um, do, do we just put our politics on hold? And I think those are the kind of questions that are coming to the fore now. And it's, and you, and it's interesting to look at Scottish nationalism because Scottish nationalism is not a politics, or well, the Scottish National Party, sorry, is not a party of blood and belonging, you know? Um, it's 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 a it's a it's a civic uh, nationalism that it's that it's advancing, um, you know. So it's 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 about the fact that Scotland can't do the things that Scotland, which looks sort of more social democratic in its political complexion than England does, um, you know. And so what what do you, what do you do? That, that 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 constitution has to change or break at some point. And I think something similar. It's the point you make of a champion champion's history. Uh, because of the violence of the, of, of the Republican movement, probably makes it very difficult for it now to make a kind of more secular offer to Northern Protestants who are perhaps disillusioned with Unionist politics. So it might not, Sinn Fein might not be the vehicle that brings Northern Protestants along. Something else might be the thing that does that. Um, but certainly, you know, this is the thing if, you, if you're going to speak to the national question as it exists here now then it is better done in terms of, you know, we will produce a more robust and um, representative, richer democracy. And what we're promising also are kind of social and economic um, conditions, which will be much more favourable than the ones you have at the moment. Two things have to come together in respect, because nobody is going to vote to be poorer, I don't think.
3: Nobody will do that, you know? Well, they they do tend to do that in England, though. But I think, you know, I think you're right. You know, the two things do come together. But I just have a feeling that Sinn Féin are just going to focus on that one issue, that border pole issue. They're not really going to look at the material conditions that people are living in. That's that's my fear. That's, you know, that's where I, I don't think they will talk about the the other issues, the bread and butter issues that really, you know, matter to people's lives. And I think there's it would be a, a huge miss. And I think, you know, I was, I was talking to my dad about this the other night and. Um, you know and i was saying that the one thing that you know because i i obviously haven't been away and and been involved you know temporarily should i say within labor party politics um is that one of the things that i thought was and should be at the root of what labor should be doing you know in in england is the community organizing project which is you know, really a localised, everything should be at localised level, embedded in communities and helping communities empower themselves, you know, to create the change that they need. And that in turn then leads to electoral success, which in some way Sinn Féin used to do, but they, they, they did, it, did it in a more cynical way, you know, which was more about um sort of winning those votes quicker that would help in certain things. But that's, you know, that's where I think they they could take that, 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 that element that, you know, discarded by you know Sir Keir Starmer Um, and that's the way to do to to bring those two issues together which is to talk about like you say how um, you know how they could offer you know through the you know the change in the the nation state you know could offer a change in their material lives but I think I just don't know whether they have that and I'm saying to my dad this is this is what they should do you know, that that's the kind of thing they should be doing. But, you know, whether they actually do that is, you know, is another thing. I think people, I think political parties just look too much to the short term. It's what can we do in the short term to get us these votes rather than that long term plan of, OK, well, if we start here, this is the end goal. How do we get there and how, you know, we'll do whatever it takes, you know, to get to that point. Yeah, can so, I
1: just this one? Oh, yeah. Um go for it.
3: Yeah, I I think
1: just to echo what the two of you said, I think we're, I mean, we talked about the crisis of Ulster unionism but I mean, what we're looking at as well is the long and continuing crisis of the British state of the UK. You know, we've we've seen a long sort of process where economic and political power has been concentrated uh, in the core, which is England and specifically London. Um, and that's been an the expense of the periphery. It's been at the expense of Northern Ireland. It's been expensive. the expense of Scotland, Wales, and even parts of the north of England. Um, the Tories and Labour arrived at a neoliberal consensus. Um, I mean, use yourselves as saying that like, there's hardly a, a bit of paper between the Tories and Labour in terms of their policies at, at the moment, and you know, I mean that, that has been the case for Corbynism was a was a sort of
3: blip arc, in the matrix you know, it was
1: a blip, yeah <laughs> you know, the, the, over the past 20, 30 years, Labour and, and the Tories have been on the same page in terms of that there's only one economic model um, and there's only, one, there's only one way of organising the economy and there is no alternative, you know, and uh, and that that's that sort of fueled this disintegration of the of the British state. So Bre- Brexit is a symptom of that, of course, and it has been a sort of accelerant um, in terms of the impact it's had on the different um, regions of of the UK. Um, I mean, I think Corbyn. If you look at the lay of the land now, like Corbyn, a Corbyn government probably would have granted the, the UK a, a stay of execution for a while. Um, but that didn't happen. That moment's gone. Um, mm-hmm. Like, it's really depressing to look into the future. Like I mean I, I mean, I think we're looking at, we could be looking at a decade of, another decade of Tory rule. You know, the, the way elections are going, the absolute state of the Labour Party, there is no mm-hmm. alternative um, in existence. Um, and... Not only uh, are the Tories going to make things worse materially for for the regions, but they've shown that they're only too happy to use the different regions of the UK as a pawn for their own games. Um, I mean, Johnson's still at it. If you look at it now, they have plans now to prohibit any attempt to prosecute British soldiers for their actions in the north of Ireland, which is going to be a fucking catastrophe here, like, if that goes through, yeah. um, and you know, it it does just it does just shore up the idea that the Tories do not give a shit about this place other than just to use them, use the North as as a pawn for their for western mm-hmm. politics. Um, but that, that comes down to that comes back to the sort of constitutional and political framework that that we're with, um, that we have. Uh, I mean, like, even if we were to elect here in the North. If we were to elect 90 out of 90 MLAs as socialists, the reality still is that the north, the Northern institutions are glorified county council.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: All of the major decisions affecting the North are made uh, by English politicians um, who are drawn from a very narrow class of people and who have no real concern for, for this place. So even if we elect a whole cohort of socialists, um, you know, we'd be very limited by the political framework and the constitutional framework that we have. Sinn Fein, like I mean, I I am very I've been very critical of Sinn Fein in the past, but if you look at Sinn Fein in the south, um, you know, they they've gained substantial support, considerable support, and it's not because of their past as such. And it's not because of their position in the constitutional question, although that is that's, that's a factor, but it's because the, the South of Ireland is in the midst of a health and housing crisis mm-hmm. and it's an economic fucking basket case. And Sinn Féin have the most progressive and convincing policies on those issues and they've appealed to the whole generation of younger people. And in fairness to Sinn Féin, they during the first stint in government with the DUP, Ten years, that was forged on a neoliberal consensus of low taxes, FDI, low wages. You know, uh, hollowing out the public sector, all of that stuff. Like they had a they had a consensus on the economy. Um, but I think in fairness, Sinn Féin had learned their lesson from that experience. Um, and if you just look at an example, the new cat, new decade, new approach agreement. Um, that was signed by the DEP in Sinn Féin uh, in 2020. And that, that provided the basis for the restoration of the institutions here. That's a lot of really good stuff in there, like about a Green New Deal and like climate transformation and workers' rights and like a whole raft of stuff. And it's like it didn't come from the fucking DEP, I can tell you that, <laughs> you know? It, it came from Sinn Féin. Because of the pressure they've come under, um because they've they they I think they recognize that they fucked up in the first 10 years they were they were in government and they recognize and this is what comes back to saying earlier on they need Northern Ireland to work because their political project rests on them being in government north and south and showing that they can deliver for the majority of people. Um so they've adopted policies and presented a program on, on that basis, but the blockage in this is the political and constitutional framework. They come up with a massive wish list in the form of this new agreement of all sorts of wonderful things they were going to do with the economy and to improve people's lives without any sort of financial commitment or support from the British government. So all they were left with was a document that wasn't worth the paper was written on. And there's no fucking way that the Tory government, and certainly not this crop of Tories, are going to provide the investment and support that is needed to deliver on any of those promises to improve working class people's lives. So like, I have to agree with Steve that it can't be avoided anymore. I mean, yeah. I think there are things that can be done to improve life here. Um, I mean, full implementation of the Good Friday Agreement would be a start. There's lots of good stuff in there about human right, a human rights bill, and um, a civic forum, and, and different things like that. But in terms of material conditions and actually, you know, making a, a decent fist of things and addressing the, the major crises that are in front of us, the the, the political framework is a major block.
0: It's, it's can fun. I, I mean, can I ask um Oh, um sorry. Sorry, Stephen. Um, yeah. No, I, I was just going to ask a really, really quick one. And then please, please do go on. Stephen. It's like, how does it feel when you have successive conservatives who are wheeled out as Northern Ireland minister? And they're like, oh, well, I haven't read the Good Friday Agreement. And you just think, well, you know, I know the Good Friday Agreement isn't the be all and end all of Irish politics, but you should at least like, if that's your brief, you should at least read 36 pages. You know that that should be a, a bare minimum. How does it feel for people? Are people bothered about that? Do the people think, Jeez, they, they don't, they don't care at all. They couldn't care less about us, or do they just crack on and and ignore it? Because like you've had Don, Dominic Robb said that, and you know all these. Obscure people that I can't remember the names of, who they put as Northern Irish minister, because it's like, oh well, you just be Northern Irish minister, you know. It's like kind of, you know, it's like being the, you know, in charge of the tea or something, isn't it? For them, they're not, they're not bothered. But like, how does it feel? I suppose it's, it's. I don't know
2: about how you feel yourselves, Tina and Sean, but you kind of don't expect anything more, and that's an awful thing. I don't expect anything more. I mean, occasionally, I think you know, looking back, I thought you know, Mo Molan was somebody who, who clearly put a tremendous amount of time and effort in here, um, and um, I think she deserves a lot of credit, you know. Um, but really, I don't know that you, you expect much more from them. I mean, I was going to, I was going to say, you know, that, um, I, that, that, that that question of the settlement that we, we need, and and I think, and this is why I think it's important not to isolate um, Northern Ireland from everywhere else in the UK at the, at the moment, because it really is a question for everybody, I think, and particularly people in England on the left. After the last election, I was driving over to an election count in Bangor and County Down here, and the exit poll come out, uh, and I said, look, this is a huge majority for the Conservative Party. And I nearly put the fucking car off the road. I was so distressed by this news. You know, I just, I was heartbroken. And I arrived over into the County banger where there was, you know, there was a number of, of, of conservative, oh, um, well, there's one conservative candidate and his supporters. The conservatives very often put up people for election here. Very often they don't come from here. They're kind of float in. You know, helicoptered in here, and it's kind of uh, go over to Ulster and see how you get on over there, and if you can, if you come back and you're unbruised, we'll like give you a safe seat here or something. But anyway, I got over, and you know, I wanted to go and rip the head of a conservative. I couldn't bear it any longer, and I come back, and I was in such a, I was, I mean, I was despairing, and I sat down and I began to go. I went back through my life. I did a kind of biography, and I began to calculate for how much of my life um, I have lived under conservative. Governments, and you know, there's a there's the, there's a brief moment, you know, in my ad, adult life when I'm when I'm politically conscious, you know, when Tony Blair gets elected. But I look at that now and I sort of think Blair got elected basically because the, the Conservatives were exhausted, um, politically all over the place, needed time to regroup, and and Blair was given permission, you know, by Rupert Murdoch and others, your turn, you look after this until the Tories are in better shape, and then the Tories are are, are back in again. In 2010. And as Sean says, it looks like we can look forward into the future and we can look forward to continuous tour. This is a one-party state. Mm -hmm. You know, know, and the only only a chance of getting an alternative government is one which is almost given permission by a kind of ruling class to take up that, that role. That's not good enough for anybody here. It's not good enough for people in England. It's not good enough for people in Scotland or Wales. And it's not good enough for people here either. And so that has to be looked at. There's somebody put up in the chat earlier on was sort of asking about a book to read, read um, Tom Nairn's The Breakup of Britain, written yeah. in 1977. Now, it's dated in many respects, but this is a book written in, in 77, which really begins to demolish um, the British state as it is at the moment. Because any state that, that, that can't produce governments of any variety, you know, you've got to question how democratic it is uh, at all. You know, it's only really nominally democratic. So I don't think this is good enough for any of us living on these islands. And I think that that needs a conversation amongst all of us. And that's why I think tonight's important to sort of, you know, to so the, so the people in England and elsewhere can hear that in some respects, this settlement that we're stuck in at the moment, we all have very, very similar frustrations about it.
3: I think the other thing, just to add to that, Stephen, I think, you know, you're, as always, you're 100% correct. And- um, I could listen to you all night about it, but I think you know. For me, you know, when when I because I've been thinking about this so much, and and obviously to 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 reiterate your uh, dismay and and disappointment and heartache at the last election, I, you know, I was a candidate for the Labour Party in that election. So whenever that exit poll came out, I I, I was very much in a similar state. But I think um, most recently, um, when we've been sort of looking at the the detail of the police crime and Is it the police crime commissioning bill? Whatever the, you know, the the official title is for it. Um,
0: Victims maybe thrown in there, you know.
3: But, well, a hell of a lot's thrown in there. But I think, you know, people have kind of, I've been having conversations with, you know, a variety of people about that. And, you know, some kind of people are are very much aware of, of, you know, what that could lead to. And some people are just really like, they just wouldn't do these kind of things. And that's why I think this conversation that we're having, about the North is really, really important. And I think that it's really important for people to understand the context of, of the North and, and, you know, what the British state has done to the North, because if people don't think that these things can happen that are in that bill, they need to very quickly understand what's happened to, you know, us in the North and and how we've been treated and how we continue to be treated, because there, are, there sometimes is this feeling, I think, And I think we're in the middle of it now, you know, it's certainly in England where people look at the Tories as being the responsible people in government who will never do anything bad to them. Even though queues at food banks are phenomenal and, you know, the housing crisis is like something we've never seen. All these things are happening. They still somehow have this notion that they'll be protected. You know, the the government, even, you know, through the, the coronavirus pandemic, oh, but they've been doing their best. They're looking after us. While they're siphoning off billions of public money you know and and you know in broad daylight you know and i think for me that's why another reason why the you know i think the the, the rest of, of britain or the, you know the rest of the uk really need to get to grips with what's happened and and how and, and i suppose that comes back to my sort of um always my display you know how you know, the unionists within the North are still so, you know, and I know, you know, what you said, Stephen, why they're attached, they're attached to the imaginary ideal, but in the reality of it, how they could still feel so attached to something that is just something inherently so bad for them as well. And I think, you know, that there is, there's a lot of learning and I know there, there's so many areas that we haven't covered and, and could cover, but, you know, I do think that it, it is a subject that maybe people that aren't aware really should, should get aware of very quickly because not not only should you never trust a Tory, but the establishment itself is only ever going to work for the establishment. It's never going to work for us ordinary folk.
2: I think that's a that's a that's a, that's a point I would love to put to to liberal moderate and and, and progressive unionists and unionists to see themselves as socialists. I know a number of them over here who are you are very very hostile. To Boris Johnson mm-hmm. and they have and, and, and they have a set of, of social and economic policies that they would love to see implemented that I'm down with I think brilliant let's go for that you know but the thing is and I, I wonder at what stage the penny drops yeah. you can't have those things that you want because you can have what England votes for and and you'll just have to like it you know and if you don't like it what are you going to do about it you know <laughs> that's a, that that's the kind of that's a kind of key question. That goes back again to what was said earlier on. If the framework doesn't work, if it, if it doesn't allow you to pursue the sort of social and economic objectives that you have, then you've got to look at it. At the moment, we're in a framework. Where you, if you want to do anything remotely progressive at all, if you want to put forward even, even what Corbyn put forward at the, at the last election, the election before, which was a, should have been a fairly uncontroversial un- un- social democratic program yeah. monstered for it. If you can't, if you can't even put that before people without being treated like you're some kind of pariah there is something wrong an alarm bell should be ringing so for those people who sort of say just we'll just we'll just keep going we'll just keep yes. going and i don't know that the, the, there's that sort of question i think somebody put it up in the chat there about you know but you know do you split do you do you form another party do you do some something else i i, I don't know what the answer to, to that is in england but i don't know to what extent you can I mean, I, 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 when I was 16 years old, I wrote to the British Labour Party and asked if I could join, you know, um, and they wrote back to me and they sort of, they said, no, uh, we don't recruit in in the north of Ireland, uh, but you can join our sister party, the Social Democratic and Labour Party, the SDLP, who are a fairly conservative party, actually. Um, you can do a donation, if you like. And here's a poster of Neil Kinnock, you know, that's how long ago it was. Um, so put the poster Neil kind of got on the wall. So I've I've always been part of. It. I would always been very very reluctant to ever um, split that in a sense. But I think it might be getting to the sort of stage we've got to sort of sit down and sort of say, is this the vehicle that'll get us yep. to there? And if it if it isn't, then you know you know that again and that might be something that that these comrades need to start start thinking about.
3: I think it's actually quite interesting because. You know, very neatly, you've kind of segued into something that is, you know, about the Labour Party, but I think it's actually the, the, the issue that the Labour Party is facing is exactly the issue that the whole of the UK is facing and the North within it, that you know, it's the structure, it's the system of it, and if you have a system that isn't going to allow you to get the things that you need, you, you, you know, you need to find a way of either changing that system or you need to rebuild another one, which it comes to your point of is the Labour Party, you know, is it the, the vehicle that, you know, that working class people can get to achieve, you know, the the socialist policies and, and the the equality and all the things that, you know, that we as, as working class people and on the left in particular are looking to achieve, and so I, I've, I've, I think I've come full circle in my feeling on the Labour Party and I, I just don't think it's the vehicle. I think the, it, it's shown through what happened with Jeremy Corbyn that, you know, what they will do if somebody goes off track. Um, and, and I, I do, I, I, I think, you know, the, the, maybe that's that's a conversation for another evening, but I do think it's quite interesting that it mirrors the actual situation of the, the UK as a whole and, and it's in the system that it works in.
2: Just to see the question there, Sean, do you think the South can afford us? <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> there's the million dollar question, literally. There's, there's a lot of talk about it's a boring, it's a boring question to answer. It's not a <laughs> question, it's an interesting question, but it's a boring one to answer. It has a boring answer. Um, there's a lot of talk about the the subvention. Like the North doesn't look like a, a viable economic, eh, but I... Mm-hmm. Like the other peripheral parts of the UK, you know, it receives a fiscal transfer. Like you know, it's it's standard practice across the UK. But as the whether the south can absorb us, Like the, the south, is, the south of Ireland is an extremely wealthy country. Like, um, it's an extremely wealthy country. Um, it could easily absorb, um, the north's true fiscal deficit, which. People have worked out to be actually around two, two billion, something like that. So it's not the ten billion that, that is often quoted, um, because that takes into account, um, you know, British debt repayment and all sorts of stuff like. But so the the two billion could easily be absorbed, Um, and you know, they I think it'd be quite straightforward to make the case, economic case for for United Ireland, you know um they, the the north has been in long term structural economic decline um as has the rest of the uk <laughs> like um the as i said the south could easily absorb the the north there's a need for a new economic model on the island um to address the the major crises are facing including the, the the climate crisis um there's the border regions that have suffered from decades of peripherality, neglect, underinvestment due to partition, due to the very existence of the border, which needs to be addressed. And in a United Ireland, they would be front and centre of any economic uh, programme. So the economic case would be very straightforward to make, and that would be part of the job. Like, um, it would be part of Sinn Féin's job, but... Uh, and you know, the, the address something you said, Steve, right? I think Sinn Féin will have to be part of the solution. They're the biggest working class party on, on the island. Um, and I don't think we have time to build another one, but it's going to have to be a much broader coalition of uh, civil society, community interests, trade unions, and, and so on, in which Sinn Féin are, are, a, are a partner. Um, but the economic the case could, will be fairly straightforward to make, and you know, that, that'll be part of the job, but there's no economic determinist argument for United Ireland. There's lots of other issues that, that have to be, and fears and concerns that have to be addressed, not just amongst the, the unionist population, but that sort of growing other category. You know, the, the new communities, the people who don't identify as British or Irish or Protestant or Catholic, and, you know, it's, it's going to be a very complex sort of process.
0: So that brings us into something I'm really really interested in talking about which is uh we are on socialist think tank. And in terms of left and right politics there you've kind of said that Chin Fein are probably like I guess the most left. So where do we stand on Northern I- on Northern Ireland um with regards to like left and right politics with socialist politics and stuff because Tina mentioned earlier on and um and actually all of you have mentioned on about the the neoliberal basis of of everything in northern ireland as well and also the the south isn't particularly socialist either is there so like with That's regards not. to you know socialist coalition i personally i believe that we need to stick together as as socialists like uh, across borders and and all sorts of different things and like you know all our struggles are you know like they, they, they're interlinked but you know there's a hugely complex situation there so in terms of left and right what we're talking about here and is there any alternative to the i suppose the traditional sectarian politics of sinn fein dup i know like sinn fein are trying to move away from the idea of of that and moving towards the left perhaps am i getting that right I'm going to stop talking now and I'm going to leave it to the experts because I think I'm I'm going off on some sort of weird tangent where I don't understand myself. So take it away, experts. That's too many
3: beers on a Friday night, Paul.
0: <laughs> no such thing. I don't know.
3: <laughs> Who's going to take that? <laughs> I think, it, God, it, I, I... Well, I think that it's, not, it's quite difficult. I don't think it really goes as a left and right. Like, it does you know, in England, where you have, you know, the left largely being Labour and, you know, etc. But I think there are splits between each, you know, kind of the the, the, the orange versus the green, you know, um, in in sort of religious politics, they have their own determinants within that, which could be seen as left and right. There isn't a particular left and right party, but there is one in the middle that's very like the Lib Dems, and that's the Alliance Party here. But they're, you know, more of a, well, I suppose like the Liberal Democrats in England, more of a middle class kind of um, middle of the, you know, middle class party. But, I, you know, I would say that there isn't really a clear left and right, you know, in the political sphere. It's more as to say the breakdown within each one. So you've got, you know, the people, people before profit, which is very small, but it is a, a, a socialist, you know, element on the. On the um, the Catholic side of politics, is there really a left wing of the uh, in the Unionists? Uh, I'd be hard pushed to say.
2: I mean, I think the other thing too is, it, you know, you can get you can get kind of fixated on electoral politics, mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: and and miss the I mean, miss the fact that you know that, that very often political progress takes place outside of assemblies and parliaments and in spite of them um you know so even the alliance party which we referred to as kind of centrist liberal democrats i think the alliance party is probably substantially a, a party of, of a kind of middle class conservatism largely you know it's yeah. a, i don't know really, you know a kind of a kind of conserve one nation conservatism transplanted over here um there might have been there might be a few old Maybe a few people from the Northern Labour Party were involved in it at some stage, but it's largely another concern. So our politics is overwhelmingly dominated um, by uh, conservatives of one shade or or another. But then you get sort of things like the women's rights movement here, you know, pushing for abortion rights for for, for women, Um, you know, LGBT community pushing for things there, um, an environmental movement, you come over here. We've got a great May Day demonstration, stuff like that. You know, we've got you know, st- you know still trade unions working. So, there's, there's stuff that kind of happens. And I think sometimes, and again, I, I, I sometimes sort of think, and I'm a member of a party myself and we campaign for things, but I'm aware of the fact that when you're a member of a party, the objective is to get yourself elected, not, mm-hmm. not the end to try to change things. And maybe sometimes there's you know you kind of because you become so focused not so fixated on it you miss the fact that if you can redirect your energies into other areas and succeed there in making improvements without necessarily having to submit yourself to you know th- five-year cycle of, and that kind of short-termism that you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier on tini you know where you kind of think you can't think beyond the next five years and what's going to get you elected again you can work work somewhere else and i'm not sort of saying it's 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 entirely successful but it, you know it, it is a possibility and maybe we need to be more aware of it and not get too hung up on yeah. every numbers.
3: I would say yeah There's, I mean oh sorry go on ahead, Sean.
1: I mean the one thing missing in Ireland north and south um, that you would find in most of western Europe is a uh, Labour Party as such like the uh, a mass working class party that has an organic link to the trade union movement. Um, and that doesn't exist in Ireland, North and South. And that's for historical reasons, for the way two states have been set up and created. Um, you know, conservative state and created in the south, and the sectarian state created in, in the north. Um, in the south, the Labour Party <laughs> really became a sort of it's the most conservative Labour Party in in Europe. <laughs> um, uh, that was you know the third whale in electoral politics um in terms of its subordination to the Gael and Finna uh Fine Faux, the two main uh, parties that have dominated Irish politics for a century. The Labour Party's always been a bit part. Um and from the 19, late 1940s it made a sort of strategic decision to enter into coalition with one of the two big parties, and that's been the picture since. Um, during the austerity period, Labour entered into government with, they did fairly well on an anti-austerity on the, on the programme, and they went into government with uh, Fine Gael, and they're subsequently wiped out, and they're never going to recover because Sinn Féin have swooped in. As, as I said, you know, on, on the back of an anti-austerity message, on the back of a social democratic uh, economic program and and message. Um, And in the last election in the South, for the first time in history, a sort of left-right divide formally emerged, um, with Fine Gael and Fianna the two historic right-wing parties, finally agreeing to enter in the government together for the first time. And on the other side of the House, you you have the opposition led by Sinn Féin, on the basis of a social democratic program, with other sort of clatterings of um, smaller lefter formations, in the north, uh, I mean, electoral politics is you know is is sectarianized, um, and class politics has always been the the victim of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's a big missing piece, I suppose, in the puzzle. And I suppose come back to the coming back to the constitutional political framework, whether the the space would ever emerge within uh within that framework for that type of class politics at the electoral level, I I don't know. But you know, I have to agree with Steve that there's a lot of good things happening elsewhere, you know, at a community level, a trade union level, and there's a lot of there's a lot of merit in putting energy into that, uh, you know, as as a means of uh, building working class institutions, building working class power, um, and influencing political processes. Like, um, so I think that's going to be required, regardless of what, um, regardless of whether there's constitutional change on the horizon. Like, you know, it's necessarily regard regardless.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, I 100% agree, you know, with both of you. And I think, you know, what I was just going to say was just to, to reiterate, you know, what you've said, Sean, but Stephen, what you've said about, you know, the the fact that so much thing, so many things can be achieved outside of electoral politics. And that's something that, you know, I've talked about with Paul before and I've talked about with, you know, another of your comrades, Paul O'Connell, Sean, um, yeah. talk about it quite a lot, um, that you know, the experience, you know, and I can only relate it to to my personal experience, which was, you know, obviously, you know, being selected as a candidate during the Corbyn years um, and seeing how the system within the Labour Party tried to, you know, shut down any sort of real change that really could be made, even, you know, as you, you know, um, correctly noted, Stephen, that the programme wasn't even that radical, you know, that, that we were offering, you know, and as someone who was naturally an activist um, and, and not a professional politician, um, I I think I got caught up, I think it was, you know, when I joined the party after the, the election when the Tories came in in 2015 and thought, God, this is the way, maybe this is the way to do it. And then you got caught up in the whole Corbyn moment and thought, right, they, we really can get change this way. And then, you know, to come out the other side of that in 2019 and, and to have the realization that no, that's not, that's that, you know, we can't just magic the change from that top down scenario of the electoral politics that, you know, it is going to have to come from, you know, the outside. Yes, it does have influence, but unless we build it up from the outside and and create those links within communities to you know on the issues to activists in other areas and, and link things through from as you build locally, you end up building nationally and, and then you can influence the people that hold those positions that make the decisions that then can affect the change for everybody and I think that's why you know I'm sort of more focusing on on what maybe you know the political parties in the north can do at that community level and what they maybe try to inspire you know younger activists to 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 focus their attention on and to become part of the change that does lead to the the material changes in the north but also the issue of you know the constitutional because it won't come from you know it, it, it can come from people like you know w- within the good friday agreement sitting behind closed doors and coming up with solutions but i think the real you know the lasting change the, the way forward for me for the north is for people to be aware and part of those demands to get that change
2: i think there's a you know there's a you know that and, and that's that's again i think one of the one of the, the reasons not to fixate on the electoral electoral mm-hmm. stuff because in some respects, when it comes to the elections, you can have the great, best policies in the world, but if you're throwing them onto, I hate to get biblical about this, but if you're throwing them onto stony ground, yeah. they're never going to take root. They're never going to seed, and they're never going to grow. Mm-hmm. And that's and I think that's one of the reasons why. And I think trademark are you know kind of pioneers in this in many ways. Um, you know that's why education matters. You know, because if you don't, if you don't begin to, to begin to broaden people's horizons around where the horizon of the possible actually is, you know, they're never going to believe you when you even come and sort of say, you know, here's something we could do. It's fairly menial, but we could do this. No, I can't see that being possible. Yeah. I see. I read in the papers. The papers just aren't. Now see, and your man who knows what he's talking about on uh, on the Mars show, he said that's not. Not going to happen, you know, if anybody watches the martial, And so there's two, there's, a, there's, a, there's a job of work to be done with regards to the education, to begin to develop that kind of more fertile ground. But that education is also, I think, very, very closely related to questions of culture as well. You know, culture is that, that space in our lives where we make things meaningful for ourselves. And, and if we, you know, culture and education are very, very closely linked. And so beginning to de- develop a kind of a consciousness amongst people that the horizons of the possible, you know, are, you know, greater than, than they perhaps perhaps anticipated. Mm-hmm. You know, this goes back again to sort of things like the, the importance of Benedict Anderson, who you mentioned earlier on, you know, who sort of talks about the idea of the imagined community. And he talks about it in terms of, of the nation. Mm-hmm. But socialism has to be imagined as well. You know, it's got, to, it's got to have an imagination. It's got to be able to sort of say, this is the thing that we're stri- striving to achieve. And that's education work, and that's culture work, and that's that's about learning through activism and being involved in those kind of stuff. And I've got, i, I speak speaking the expe- expe- better experience of having been somebody who thought at one stage that these things here over here will work, this electoral path will work. You know, we do this, that, and, you know, and this sort of work. And at the ripe old age of you know being you know, middle age now, I'm suddenly going, actually, that's all shite. That doesn't really work at all. We should have been doing this. <laughs> yeah,
1: the entering your anarchist phase there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, late life, um, but you know, that that's sort of thing. people sort of say they get more right-wing as they get older, I think we just drift into the left. And actually I sort of think there's much more serious work that needs to be done outside of, of political parties, which in many respects is preparing the ground for those sort of political successes, but that ground hasn't been prepared yet, yeah. you know, and yeah. we're a long way from it. And you can see it in terms of education, you can see it in higher education, which has retreated from the idea thinking critically you can see it also in terms of the media or even the bbc which had an elitist version of public service broadcasting has retreated even from that into kind of free market and commercial thinking in terms of education culture we're on our own here you know and that's i say that's that's a problem for us over here in the north and trying to imagine a better settlement than the one we have but it's a problem for all of us
0: Oh, Paul can't hear Paul muted. Yeah, uh, So yeah, know what I was saying is I, I guess Okay, <laughs> sorry. Um my fridge is packed up and it's making this really weird noise. So I'll keep I'm um, I'm muting myself on this little microphone here, so that's why. Um, you know, I'm I'm so I'm so slick. But uh <laughs> and um so I, I don't know if from... you saw me, I
1: was waving my, my dogs standing here at the door. He's trying to get in now. Going...
0: Oh, I tell you what, that's the best I thing about just live streams across is the, <laughs> it, it, it's the its the animals of the live streams. So I guess like, from from everything you've said, um, you know, there are a lot of lessons to be learned from the situation in, in Northern Ireland. And I suppose like there's, we talked about left-right politics earlier on. And one of the things I had an interesting conversation with someone earlier on, and they were saying the Labour Party have moved too far to the left. And we, I explored it a little bit too far. And what he meant was they were undemocratic because they tried to overturn the Brexit referendum. Now that's undemocratic. That's nothing to do with left and right. That's just being undemocratic. You know that's. But they have now, like the Conservatives, have owned that. They've changed the rhetoric, and I suppose like this, there's a blurring of lines between what people think left wing is and right wing is. And I suppose that you've lived that for quite a long time. This like where it's not really to do with left and right. So I guess I think the final question, because uh, we did say we'd kind of give it a cut off at some point, because otherwise we could be here for like, I don't know, 44 weeks, a 44 week (laughs) live stream of the history of Northern (laughs) Ireland and all the problems you've faced and stuff. So I guess like we like to end up on a, on a upbeat note, I suppose. What can we do? What can we do? How can we challenge what these problems is? How can we learn from from what we've, uh, from what you've experienced, and you know, support one another as as socialists, as people who want to have, like you know, better lives for the for for their own communities. You know, where where can we go? And I guess like relatively short and uh and i don't expect you to solve the world's problems at the moment either <laughs> so uh don't feel too much pressure because how in the world can you solve that one but is there anything like like small steps that we can take towards um you know changing people's minds and and working together as a working class communities and let's go let's let's go stephen
2: I, I really, I, th- I think, in some respect, what I said earlier there just a, a minute ago is that's kind of my last word on it. Really, it, it, it is. I just, I, th- I think, the importance of education at the moment is mm-hmm. just huge, um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and the importance of of trying to develop um, out of that education a kind of socialist culture, mm-hmm. you know, that that becomes a kind of repository of mm-hmm. of uh, meaning and uh, experience, that and practice yeah. that people can begin to draw upon. Because that's that's really very, very sadly lacking at the moment. and that is that is the ground that you will sow those seeds of policy on. Mm-hmm. So I think you know we, we we need at this stage to be we need to be good gardeners, basically and tend the soil. yeah you know? and I think that's the key.
3: I think um for me, Interestingly enough, the word, you know, the, funny enough, I thought this word was going to come up more in the conversation and that's about um, tolerance, you know, and I think that that's maybe something, you know, you know in, in the north, there maybe isn't a lot of tolerance to a lot of, you know, issues. But I think, you know, for me, I think, you know, we're, we're living in the world of, you know, social media. Um, we're living in the world of you know everything you know is it's either everything feels like it's become quite binary you know it's either this or that and you know there's no doesn't seem to be any space for the you know the whole you know everything's about the the what's in between you know and I think that you know the left are, are, are very bad at this as well and that's about tolerating other people's views that are so diametrically opposed to your own but we have to be able to do that but and we have to be able to have the conversations with the people who really do hold views that are, you know, completely disagreeable to our own and to, to find a way to be able to talk and, 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 and work through that and be able to come to, you know, to a compromise in some respects. But the only way we're going to be able to win people around to, to the, the, the you know, the, the vision that we hold for society um, is to be able to listen and have those conversations and understand where the other side are coming from to be able to bring them over more to, you know, to, to what we're on. I think the other thing that I think I spoke about this whenever I was on before, Paul, um, is about community organizing, about, you know, you know, it, it's it's key. I think we've got to think locally. We've got to be... know embedded in communities and and build that sense of you know and I'm, i'm not talking about you know creating huge change but even just something on your local you know your street something that can change that that gives people the the um the confidence to know that in that collective that there is you know um, a way to, to create the change that you need so you know I do think that we've got to be having conversations I suppose it links to what Stephen's talking about education you know in the workplace wherever you are having those conversations and and, and talking to people but then also that organising element where getting people together to, to really you know make a difference and, and that then grows and, and becomes bigger and bigger It's
1: amazing it? Yeah, yeah go, on, go for it got the Book end the show bigger. as well yeah, just to pick up on Steve's thread, I suppose, on some of the stuff that Tina said, there's countless numbers of campaigns um, on community groups and, and institute working-class institutions that exist in the north that are active. They're doing really good stuff. They're active on housing and defending the NHS. There's anti-mining campaigns in Tyrone here, um, in, in the west in the northwest of, of Ireland. Um there's 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 any number of campaigns that are ongoing and class based community campaigns that you can identify. So like if there's anything we can do it's it's to engage with them, mm-hmm. promote them. Um, that's those are the types of campaigns. That's the type of politics that increasing numbers of people are looking towards, especially younger generations coming through here in the north. So I suppose if there's anything you can do, it's it's to talk about those and promote those through through your networks. Um, to to identify those um those sorts of things that are happening beneath the surface. I think the thing is that they're not they're not connected vertically. They're not connected horizontally with a progressive political context. But we can fight for the pro- progressive political context and political framework at the same time supporting those sort of grassroots movement. And, like, of course, I'm going to echo what Steve said about po- uh, political education. Like, that's our bread and butter. Um, but those two things come together. Like, I mean, we're working with some groups in the border counties of... Uh, uh, the, the border counties, and particularly uh, Fermanagh, uh, out in the sticks. And we're talking, like... People are sick to fucking death about being told how sectarian they are. You know? Um, they're increasingly turning to, to new politics, um, and the bigger sort of challenges facing us. Um, and we're doing things like community wealth building and modern monetary theory and Marxist theory and all sorts of stuff. Like Steve's been down speaking to some of these groups as well, like, and 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 it's brilliant. And as Steve says, that gives them the confidence, and that gives them that promotes a sort of class-based socialist consciousness amongst people who are already active in, in struggle. So there's anything we can do is to it's to engage with that and promote that, and you know, that kind of thing.
3: There's loads um, of hope. You see, this is this is you know why we end on this question. There is loads of hope. There <laughs> there is opportunity. You know, and and. I do feel hopeful and i think you know it's been a really dismal day i think you know when we look at the elections and uh, you know i was having a conversation about that um yesterday and just saying that you know out of every sort of catastrophe like this a real failure there is the huge opportunity to to read to, for like rebirth and, and create something new, but stronger, better, you know? And the way to do that is exactly what Sean's saying is linking up those things that, you know, it's all the things I think that we've mentioned. And if you link all those together, you know, but, you know, the, you know, you do have the solution. It's just, you know, it's just getting people together to do that because if we could do it, we would all be doing it now and it would all be amazing. But I do think that we are seeing, if we grasp the opportunity that we have, no, you know, it's, it's ours for the taking really.
0: Absolutely brilliant. Well, thank you to, to all of you. And thank you so much for doing this. We will do a little debrief after, um after we go offline um in a, in a couple of minutes. What I do want to say is if anyone wants to get involved in socialist think tank, it is absolutely free for any member to join. You can choose to contribute if you like to mean to like, you know, just, stop us from from having to pay like all extortionate fees and, and what have we But uh, we're not bothered, you get the exact same membership whether or not you pay for it um, and I think the important message to come out of this is just like stick together show each other solidarity, listen to one another and education is massively massively important so I would just like to say once again thank you so much and uh, I hope to hear from you all soon, you're all Really welcome to come on the show anytime you want. Tomorrow we are going to be doing a um, a debrief on the local elections, which uh, should be quite fun. Um, you know, we'll 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 go into the detail of Hartlepool and all other things, um, and uh, yeah, County Durham as well. And We'll see you soon. And also we've got um, Luke Wenman from GRT Socialists who's going to talk about gypsy, Roma, Traveller, racism and everything, uh, all the struggles they face. And it's an absolutely excellent interview. So we um, we hope to see you tomorrow again. And uh, take care, everyone. See you later. We'll keep
2: the red flag here.